Isaac uh, de Israeli in, in 1834 wrote the following words. He says, It is a wretched taste to be gratified with mediocrity when the excellent lies before us. You follow that? It's an excellent, it, it, it says it's a wretched taste to be gratified with mediocrity when the excellent lies before us. Unfortunately, too many of us have uh, grown content with such mediocrity. If you stop and think about it, it's rare to find the person who uh, refuses to let the majority shape his or her standard, or the person who aims high, or the person who stands firm on his or her convictions. And uh, most folks are engulfed in mediocrity and cynicism and deliberately choose not to live differently than the rest. Words like, just go with the flow, don't make waves, who cares, what difference does it make anyway, begin to find hearing in such an environment. And it's become easy in our days of political correctness to rationalize and even justify our willingness to compromise. I'm reminded of a story of a young man who was a Jewish boy who found himself at a new school. When he got to the new school, he realized that he was the only Jewish boy among his classmates. But fortunately, it was in a small town and they were nice to him and there wasn't any mean taunting or anything like that. And one day in the class, the teacher posed this question to the students trying to get them involved in the learning experience. And she said this, Class, I'd like to know who was the greatest person who ever lived and why was this person great? And now to encourage participation, she pulled a $20 bill out of her wallet and said, whoever has the right answer, the best answer, gets the $20. Well, as soon as that challenge was offered, boy, the hands started flying up all over the class. And she called on one of the students and she she said, yes, who do you think it was? And the little boy said, I think it was George Washington. And she said, well, why? He said, well, because he was the father of our country. And she said, boy, that's an excellent answer. That's an excellent... Is there anybody else? And another hand goes up and says, who do you think it was? And he said, the little boy says, it was Abraham Lincoln. And the teacher said, why do you think that? And, he, and uh, the little boy said, because uh, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. And the teacher, not wanting to call every an- a- answer excellent, went, that's very good too. And the little girl raised her hand and, and she says, Joan of Arc. says, why? It says, because jo- Joan of Arc, Joan of Arc in, in France, she, she saved France. And she died as a martyr for saving France. And the teacher said, that's very good as well. Then the little Jewish boy, Yoshi, raises his hands and she says, yes. And he says, Jesus Christ. And the teacher is just taken back by this. And she gets all excited. She says, class, don't you agree that Yoshi had the right answer? Doesn't he deserve the $20? And they all clap and say, yeah. And he comes up and she makes a big deal about it. Gives him the 20 bucks. The little boy goes back to his seat. And uh, later in the, in the playground, she didn't want to put him on spot in front of her classmates, but she said, Yoshi, I'm really surprised by this. Why, why would you say Jesus Christ? You know, she was surprised being a Jewish boy that he'd say Jesus was the greatest person that ever lived. And this little boy looked at her and said, well, frankly, teacher, between me and you, I think Moses was the greatest person to ever live. But hey, business is business. <laughs> Well, what's the point of that? You know, I, you know, on the surface, it's a, it's a hilarious story. I love the story. It's a funny story. But there's also an underlying message that needs to be exposed. And that's this truth. We live in an age of increasing compromise. A day when uh, most would rather be popular than be right. As they say, a day when most people would rather be elected president than be right and have firm convictions. 
And unfortunately, or even maybe sadly, many of God's people find themselves going with the flow and not making any waves and justify their willingness to compromise. If you stop and think about it, in a world who's, where such mediocrity is the norm, what's lacking in our culture today? And I believe it's simply this, courage. Or as the line said, courage. It's courage. We don't have very many courageous people in our culture today. Courage is that strong muscle of character that gives a nation its pride and gives a home its purpose and gives a person the will to excel. Uh, and and uh, when you think about it, that courage is gone. Alexander Solzhenitsyn frequently warned about this fact when he said this, Must one point out that from ancient times a decline in courage has been considered the beginning of the end? His point is well taken. Is it, isn't it obvious that from ancient times, the decline in courage is often the beginning of the end for a society. We need men and women who will be courageous in the face of difficult circumstances, who will not waver from that which is right, who will stand firm on their convictions. I know it's been said that every one of us has a price, but I wonder if that's really true. Do you have a price? Do I have a price? Does everyone really have a price and every person can really be bought? Fortunately for us, God has chosen to record the life of a man who stood tall in the midst of a hostile environment. A real life hero. A bona fide role model. A man who couldn't be bought and his name is Daniel. And the book that records his life is a book that's named after him and it's Daniel. And we're going to take a look at his life. If you've got your Bibles, open with me to Daniel chapter 1. This man is a hero. This man was courageous in adverse circumstances. This man's life is worth studying. This man is everything that you and I are supposed to be in a world that's hostile to the things of God. And in Daniel chapter 1, we'll start to take a look at his life in the first seven verses as we start there. And we read these words. It says, And in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature of the language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. It says, Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And as we take a look at this first chapter, and we see these first seven verses, we're introduced in this chapter to Daniel and his friends, who, as we'll learn, are men of great courage. And uh, it's fascinating as we take a look at this, but before we do that, and, we, and before we look at um, what, we'll, what we're going to see as the development of Daniel and his friends... 
what I'd like to do is, is have you turn back to the book of Ezekiel for a second. It's a book that immediately precedes it. And what's interesting to me is I, I ran across something in my studies that, you know, you run across stuff and you go, man, this is exciting stuff. You can't wait to let everybody know about it. You want them in on the, on the, on the joy of discovering some things that you find in God's Word. And I guarantee you this, that as the, as the old southern boy says, uh, you know, if this don't light your fire, you got wet wood. And so in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 14, check this out. What Ezekiel has to say about Daniel, who is, a, who is basically, uh, um, they're about the same age at this particular time. In Ezekiel 14, look what the Bible records in verse 12 through 14. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel speaking, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. Although Ezekiel and Daniel were about the same age, Ezekiel talked about Daniel as if he were a giant on a pedestal, a man of greatness. The interesting thing is, what's the significance of this particular passage that links Noah, Daniel, and Job in the same breath or the same sentence? What did these three men have in in common? And I'll tell you what they had in common. It's simply this. These men were men who were committed to honoring by obeying the Word of God. If you stop and think about it, these men were committed to honoring the Word of God by obeying it and applying it in their life. Noah, as he was told by God to build an ark, for 120 years he preached repentance to a generation that mocked him and scoffed him and laughed at him and thought he was nuts when he told people the judgment of God was coming unless they repented of their sins. They thought he was crazy. He was building an ark. An ark for what? An ark for a flood. Why is it going to flood? It's going to rain. What's rain? Never saw it, never heard of it. What are you talking about? You're nuts. And they laughed at him and they continued to party all around him. And I could just see it while he and his family were working day and night to do what God said to do was right. They were laughing and having a good time. And the judgment of God was right around the corner. But you know what? Noah, when he was told by God what to do in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, continued to obey God and just did as God said. We're going to find the same is true of the life of Daniel. Certainly it was true of Job. In the midst of all the circumstances that he was in, even a wife who said to him, Curse God and die. How can you still have faith in your God? How can you still have faith in a God that would take our family away, take our business away, take our money away, take our material things away, take everything away from us? How can you still have faith in a God like that? Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And he said, you foolish woman, you speak as a foolish woman. Don't you know naked we've come into the world and naked we'll go out, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Bible says, and Job never sinned at once, nor did he sin with his lips, nor even in his heart. He did what was right before God. And now here we are introduced to this man, Daniel, which was fascinating because the Spirit of God links these three men together for the purpose of allowing us to understand that Daniel is a great man of God. Noah was already dead. Job was already dead. Ezekiel was writing about Daniel, who was a compatriot of his, the same age as him. And Ezekiel's writing about Daniel as if Daniel's a great patriarch that had already done what he did and no longer was there anymore. But he's saying about Daniel, this man too ranks right up there through the inspiration of the Spirit of God. God is letting all of us know that, you know what, Daniel was a great man of God. And even though he had not yet done the things that we're about to study and see that he does, God knew what he would do and recognize him as a great man of God. You know, typically it's hard to recognize greatness in our own generation. 
Usually we look back in hindsight and then we begin to evaluate, as history records, the great deeds or great activities of certain men and women. We look back and say, boy, you know, we really missed the boat. They were great people and they walked among us and we didn't even recognize it until they were gone. Well, what God wanted Daniel to be recognized by his peers. Ezekiel recognized him. The Spirit of God recognized him and said, hey, among you now walks greatness. Watch his life. Pay attention to what he does and do the same thing as him. He's our role model. He's our standard. He's a standard that we set and we say, hey, let's all aim a little higher. Let's not settle for mediocrity. Let's not be cynical. Let's not ask the questions, does it really make a difference? Does one person really matter? Can a young person really make a difference in the world today? Hey, we're going to find out the answer is absolutely. If we keep our eyes and ears focused on God and on His Word and we apply it in our life as we learn it and and put it in our heart, we can make a huge difference in our culture. Daniel did, and we can as well. And that's basically what we're looking at. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm a little bit excited about this. And I'll tell you why, because it's long overdue. We need an infusion of courage in our culture today among the people of God. And in this first chapter, we're going to examine basically three things that will help us better understand Daniel. The first thing we're going to look at is the circumstances that brought him to Babylon from Jerusalem, which we've already seen in the first seven verses. Obviously, we're going to look in depth. In verses 8 through 16, we're going to see the conviction of Daniel and his friends as they're pressured in this environment that they find themselves in. And then the last thing, we're going to look at the comparison of Daniel and his friends to the rest of the culture around them and see some of the promises that God makes for all of us. So anyway, the first thing we're looking at is go back to uh, uh, the first seven verses. And we're going to look at the circumstances that brought them into Babylon to begin with. The circumstances that bring Daniel and his friends to Babylon. And we found it in verses 1 through 2, and that's this. The Bible tells us that there was an invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible says in the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We said there was an invasion that takes place. After the battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar was pursuing Pharaoh Necho back to Egypt. And as he was chasing him through Jerusalem, the Pharaoh, as he was going back to Egypt and his army that was going with him, being chased by Nebuchadnezzar and his army, they went past Jerusalem and they just kept on going. Now the problem was, as Nebuchadnezzar came through Jerusalem, he looked around, saw what was going on there, he stopped, let Pharaoh Necho go back to Egypt, he stopped in Jerusalem because he had heard the stories of the, of the foolishness of, uh, of uh, King, uh, who was it, uh, Hezekiah. When Hezekiah was under, was under siege, what he did was he opened the treasuries of God to show his enemies that he had nothing to hide. And you can read about this in uh, 2 Kings 20, verse 12 through 15 in Isaiah chapter 39. What he did was, he said, look, I don't have anything to hide. Look, you can see even all of our wealth. And the foolishness of God, God was like, what, are you an idiot or what? And so what happened now is Nebuchadnezzar is going through Jerusalem. He sees this beautiful city. He hears the stories of all the great wealth of Jerusalem. He says, you know what, I don't have to chase this guy. He's already on his way back to Egypt. I'm stopping here. And that's exactly what he did. And the Bible tells us, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Notice what he's saying here. Here's Jerusalem. It was ready for the, the pickings. And he stopped. And God, notice this, because this is something we're going to find all throughout the study of the book of Daniel. And if you haven't noticed it yet, as you study through the book of Bible, it's this. God's in control of all things. I don't know if you noticed that yet, but God's in control. He's in charge. And, and the reason I throw that out now is this. 
Some of us are so afraid to take any steps to where we can be identified with God, the people of God. You didn't get the check this week? Alright, it's in the mail. But, you know, that we're so afraid to be identified with God and the people of God or even the principles of God, we're, all, we're, we're, just, we're running scared all the time. And the question I have for you is this, why? God is in control of all things. God gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar didn't take him or take Jerusalem. The only reason he was able to have success in the battle was because God allowed it to happen. God's in control of everything. Let's not forget that as we're sitting around feeling sorry for ourselves or being afraid to take a stand for, for the things of God. God's in control. Nothing can happen to you and me unless God allows it for His purposes and for His glory. And so as we look at this, we see this invasion that takes place. And what's fascinating now, we see also as we look at this, then the king, the Bible says, then the king ordered, which has to do with the instructions of Ashpenaz, and that's this, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles. Now listen to what the purpose was here so we have a good understanding of what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem, he takes over, and basically says this. Hey, look, you know what? He has to go back to Babylon because he hears word that his father died, so he can't stay in Jerusalem and he can't, he can't do the things that he wants to do at this particular point in time. So he goes back to Babylon and um, he wants to make sure that everything's still under control in Jerusalem. So what he does is he likes Jehoiakim. Because Jehoiakim was basically a vessel of Egypt anyway, and the, and the Pharaoh had allowed him to stay on the throne. Here's Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and yet he was still faithful to, to uh, Pharaoh and to Egypt. And so he recognized that, hey, you know what? This guy's too afraid to do anything anyway, and I'll basically cut him in on the deal. And that's this. I'm going to allow you, Jehoiakim, to stay in control or to be, remain king in Jerusalem. But, just in case he gets any strange ideas, he tells his chief master or his chief prince, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some of the top people that surround him as far as his kingdom is concerned, his administration is concerned. I want you to take some of his, his children, his sons, uh, some of the, the, the chosen people. I want you to take them and we're going to ship them on back with us to Babylon in case Jehoiakim gets any stupid ideas. We'll always have some leverage against them. Don't forget, we got your kids. We got the people that are close to you. You think about doing anything stupid, we'll execute them in a second. So basically, hey, you know, we got you where we want you. And what's interesting is the instructions that we see of Ashpenaz is something that's really fascinating historically because what happened was anytime a country would come in and take over another country, what they would do was take all the top people that were in that administration. If they didn't kill them, uh, the older people they killed. The younger people they took because they knew they could train them to change the way they thought about things in life. And the Bible tells us, and also secular history, that most of the time the men that they chose were between the ages of 13 and 17. Because it was the formidable years where they could take them and they could mold them into the kind of people they wanted them to become. They would take those who were set in their ways and they would execute them. They were no longer a threat. They would take the young people and they would say, hey, look, you know what? We can make something out of these people and that's what we're going to do. And so we have good reason to believe historically because of that, that Daniel and his friends were between the ages of 13 and 17 when they were taken into captivity which is fascinating, as we'll see, because these are young men of great courage, and they are definitely that, young men, when they're taken into this hostile environment. Now, what's interesting is, look at the qualifications in verse 4 of what they were looking for as far as these men were concerned. It says, and he told him, he said, Youths in whom was no defect, 
who were good-looking. The word no blemish or no defect means they had outward perfection. They were good-looking, which basically means they were lookers. They were good-looking. That's what it means. Isn't it amazing how sometimes it's really simple? They showed intelligence in every branch of wisdom. They were endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. You notice what they noticed about these guys? These guys were not mediocre. They excelled in what they do. Here's a little principle for you. God's people should be the best at whatever it is that we do. Because we're not doing it for man. We don't do it to get promoted. We don't do it to make more money. We don't do it to get noticed by people. We do it because, hey, you know what? Shouldn't we do it because it's pleasing to God? God demands our best. He gave us His best when He gave us Jesus Christ to die for our sins on the cross. God didn't spare anything when He gave us Jesus on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Now God says, you believe in Him and trust in Him. Now give Him the best. We should be the best at what we do. And what's interesting to me and fascinating to me is so many of us walk around so cynical because, you know what, I've done my best and nobody notices. Let me tell you something. God notices... Daniel and his friends were the best at what they did. They took care of themselves. They looked good. They were knowledgeable. They were educated. They had high IQs. And you know what? Quite frankly, I'm pretty tired of the stereotype of Christians in our culture that we're anything less than the best that this culture has to offer. If you're in school, you should be the best student in your class. If you're a teacher, you should be the best teacher on that campus. If you're in the workplace, you better be the best employee. Don't we understand we need to be the best husbands, the best fathers, the best mothers, the best wives, the best neighbors, the best of everything. Stop settling for anything less than the best because you think that no one around you notices. God does. These people were noticed. These men were noticed. The ones who didn't excel, guess what? They were probably executed. Who knows what happened to them? But you know what's interesting is this this king, Nebuchadnezzar, recognized talent. This official, this chief official, this prince of of Nebuchadnezzar recognized excellence. It stood out, heads and shoulders above everybody else. And because of that, God, listen to me, because of that, God was able to put them into a new environment where they could be used by God to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. Some of us don't get past go because we don't give it our best. And therefore, we're limited in our ministry to God and the kingdom of God to be used by God to make a difference in our culture. I'm going to ask you some tough questions, and I've been asking myself if I've gone through this, but you know what? Is that me? Is that you? When people see your life, do they see that you're the best that you can be? That you give 100% whether anyone recognizes it or not? I know how hard it is. I've worked for people, you think that, man, I'm busting my rear end and nobody even notices around here. And who gets promoted? The guy's son or the guy's nephew or the guy's friend. And man, I'm working my rear end off and nobody knows anything. We see it all the time in the athletic field. Guys that are working hard and you know what? Hey, who knows why sometimes? Maybe it's a coach's friend or it's somebody else in, in the school. Maybe it's the athletic director, the football coach's son or whatever. And he's on the baseball team and it's all boys network and he gets to play and maybe you don't. Who cares? That's not the point. The point is is that you do your best. The point is that you excel in everything that you do so that you bring honor to God and the kingdom of God. That's the point. 
Daniel knew that. He recognized that. But now the interesting thing is that there's going to be a little brainwashing that takes place here. So what he wants to do is he wants to take these men of excellence, these young men of excellence, and he says, you know what? We can change them. We can brainwash them. We can make them just like us so that by the time we're done with them, no one will know the difference. They'll be just like us. They'll no longer remember that these are Jewish boys from Jerusalem. They'll look at them and say, they're Chaldeans of the, Bab- of the Empire of Babylon. That's what they're trying to accomplish at the end of three years. Now the question for you is this, how does that brainwashing take place? You know how it takes place? The same way it takes place today. And you know how it is? Three ways. Number one, it happens with our minds. Notice what he says. We're going to teach them the language of the Chaldeans. It starts with the mind. The instructions in Ashpenaz were very clear. Hey, you're going to brainwash these guys. And the way you're going to brainwash them is you're going to start it with their mind. Mentally, they have to change. They can't think the way they used to think. They're going to teach them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. These young men had been trained in Jewish thought and in Jewish literature. They've been trained according to the Torah, the laws of God. And so what they were about to have happen to them was, hey, you need to change the way you think. If you're going to become part of our program and part of our team, then you need to change the way that you think. You know, it's fascinating. Several years ago, the company I was working for was purchased by a major oil company. And uh, they had a personnel department that came in and interviewed all of us who were in management position. And during the interview process, they'd ask you things like, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? What are your outside interests? They always like to ask stuff like that. Because they were looking for people whose outside interests are, I really like to wine and dine and entertain my guests and do whatever it takes to get the job. And uh, so that's what they're looking for. But it, it, doesn't, it never really says that. You know, as in question number nine, do you like to wine, dine, sell out, do whatever it takes so that we can be more profitable as an organization? They, they don't ask that, but it's always there. It's there. And uh, so, they, you know, I'm interviewing with this guy and he goes, you know, what are some of your outside interests? Well, you know, I really, I like to teach the Bible. What else do you like to do? Well, at the time, I was a chaplain with the Rams. Oh, and I like to teach the Bible to uh, National Football League players when they come into town and the ones that are here locally. Uh, what else do you like to do? Well, you know, if I'm going to teach, I like to study, so I know what I'm talking about. So I like to read the Bible. Well, what else do you read? Well, I like to read anything that has to do with the Bible. <laughs> what kind of books do you read? Well, I just told you, anything that has to do with, you know, Christian thinking, Christian, you know, uh, life, Christian uh, thoughts, uh, anything that complements what the Bible has to say. That's what I like to read. How about you? What do you like to read? So, well, that's all right. That's not the point. Yeah, I'm interviewing you. So, the, so that's, that's it? I said, hey, you know what? I don't have much time left after that. And I got the report back, you know, the next, and then you get moved to the next guy. So the next guy is the senior vice president in charge of all acquisitions for um, this major oil company, who I'd like to name, but they have a lot of money and I don't have any, so in case they want to sue me, <laughs> they just pretty much crush me. Uh, but I was like, you know, and here's what, here's what it, it said on it, and I wrote it down so I didn't get this wrong. Needs to broaden his viewpoints. Needs to broaden his viewpoints. Hey, you know what? The goal of secular education is try to deceive God's people into believing that the current lies of the day. That's it in a nutshell. You miss it? I'll say it again. The goal of secular education is to try to deceive God's people into believing the current lie or lies of the day. 
And the only thing that can set us free from that is having a good biblical understanding of the things of God and the truth of the Word of God. I like a book I read not too long ago written by David T. Jer- uh, David T. Moore. It's called Five Lies of the Century. I like how he summarized them, and I'll just run through them real quick. I don't mean to get into it. You can go buy the book yourself. Uh, but lie number one is America never was a Christian nation. He went into great detail on how that's a lie, and the, four fo- the, the founding fathers of our country were all people that un- had a good understanding of the God of the Bible, Judeo-Christian principles, and established this nation as, it, as we say, one nation under God. In God we trust. We are a Christian nation. Whether people today want us to believe that we're not doesn't make any difference. We just go back through and look at the historical record and we'll realize that this nation was blessed by God because we gave people the freedom to worship the true God of the Bible. The second lie he gets into is that the traditional family is irrelevant. It really doesn't make any difference what God's design is because they don't believe in God anyway. And so therefore we try to redesign what God had already ordained and that's simply this. That God believed and he established that the family should consist of, what? A husband and a wife, a father and a mother, and however many children God would bless that couple with. That was God's plan for the family. It wasn't, as they say, Adam and Steve. It was Adam and Eve. And, you know, all the nonsense that we have going on here that somehow we're not tolerant people is exactly that. It's a lie from the pit of hell and it violates biblical principle. And the only way that you and I will ever understand it as a good, a good heaping dose of the Word of God to set us free from all this nonsense. Evolution is an established scientific fact. It is not. I'm so tired of everywhere I go where you see, you know, entertainment departments of people like Disney espousing how we've all evolved over a period of billions and billions of years and how if you add enough zeros to it, somehow it makes it credible. That's like me telling you that, you know what, this overhead projector, if we wait long enough, is going to become a beauty queen uh, for the city of Orange 22 billion years from now. In fact, here's a leg already. Look how long and skinny it is. That somehow it'll... Believe it, you just need to be here billions and billions of years from now. And any person in their right mind goes, that's a bunch of nonsense. But everywhere that we go, that theory, and that's exactly all that it is, and it's not even a theory, I'm going to tell you something, it's a religion. Because it's all based on faith. And it's all based on the faith in the scientists who are feeding you the information. Personally, my belief is based, based on faith as well. But it's based on faith in the eternal God of the universe who says He created the universe and the evidence is overwhelming and the Word of God is true. And if God says it, I believe it. And it's not because I'm just irrational about it or I haven't checked into it. It's because the facts are overwhelming. Evolution is not a proven scientific fact. It's nonsense. It's a religion. It's based on faith. It just depends on who you want to have faith in. The fourth lies that the sexual revolution has set humanity free. What a lie that is. The Word of God tells us that we're not to have sexual relationships with anyone other than our heterosexual spouse and to remain faithful within that relationship. Otherwise, it violates the design of God. And sexually transmitted diseases that have run rapid in our culture are evidence of the fact that something's not right with the sexual revolution. And all the unwanted pregnancies and the abortions that have followed to try to protect and cover up for our sin are exactly that. It's a way of trying to circumvent the plan of God. And it's a lie and it's not true. And the Word of God clearly teaches us that and we need to recognize that. The last lie that he says in his book is that entertainment is harmless. And I agree with him. 
that it is a lie. Entertainment is not harmless. If you look at the violence and the things that are promoted in entertainment today, and even as a, a person who loves sports as much as I do, God is working and convicting me in my life as far as the amount of time that I dedicate to that pursuit. Because the, frankly, the bottom line of it is this, while there is nothing in and of itself wrong with athletics or anything of it, the problem that I have is this, the amount of time that I spend doing these things is a time that's fruitful as far as God is concerned to further advance the kingdom of God. Fortunately for me, God has opened a door for me to do something that I love to do in an area that I love to be involved in that gives me an opportunity to open the Word of God and to teach the Word of God to people that need to hear it. And what, what a great, and you can't ask for a better combination than that. But on the other hand, we need to recognize something. That's simply this. God's truth has been and always will be under attack. The infiltration of the mind with Chaldean thinking and literature was the goal. That was the game plan. Listen carefully to Colossians 2, 6 through 8, where we read this. As you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. What is he saying? Hey, we need to fill our mind with the Word of God. And we need to beware... We need to be careful of the deceit that's in the world today that's trying to fill our mind with garbage that is anything but lined up with the Word of God. We need to recognize and understand that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The base things to confound those who think they are wise in their own estimation. God has chosen the cross of Jesus Christ as a stumbling block to the Jews and as foolishness to the Gentiles. God has chosen the cross as the only way that man can be reconciled with God. God sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins as a substitute for our sins. And the world says that's foolish. There's got to be another way to get to heaven. There's got to be another way to please God. To the Jews it was a stumbling block because they didn't understand Messiah they didn't understand his role but one day they will but the Gentiles to the rest of us it's foolishness that's crazy you want to say if I believe in Jesus Christ and I invite him into my life that God forgives me of my sin and I become a child of God and I can look forward to heaven for all of eternity just because I believe what Jesus did absolutely that's the truth of the word of God well that's foolish that's foolish well what isn't what is what isn't foolish to you that you'll work your way to heaven? That somehow you'll earn your way in the presence of God? What do you think you have to do? And it doesn't take long before they realize that what they think is foolish. What do you got to do? What do you got to give up? How much more do you got to do? Are you doing enough? Are you good enough? Or can you get there? If you die today, you're going to heaven? Well, I'm not sure. Hey, well, you know what? Well, what's more foolish? To believe something that you can be certain in or to believe something you're not sure of the end result? I am sure. I am convinced. I have confidence. And it's not because of me. It's because of God. I can trust God. And God said it. I believe it. And the case is closed. The interesting thing is what they try to do is they try to change them mentally. They try to get them to think. They try to, as the oil company said, got to get this guy to broaden his viewpoint toward life. If we can't, we are not going to be able to mold him. We're not going to be able to, to create in Him, what we need. And I say, tough. And I say, guess what? I didn't need them for God to provide a living for me and my family. And I don't know if you know this or not, but if you're selling out because you think you need your job and you're selling out and you're compromising and, and, and you basically are settling for anything less than being excellent as far as God is concerned, you don't need them. You need God. 
Because God can open any door He chooses. And as we'll see in the life of Daniel, that's exactly what God does. He will open the door to those of us who are faithful and give us opportunities that we never thought were possible because we're afraid of the people around us. He wanted to change them mentally. He also wanted to change them, look at this, socially. He wanted to change them socially. Social customs. They were given the best the king had to offer. They're going to give it royal food. They're going to be given the best wine. They're going to be given the same thing that the king had. Do you know the best way to get somebody on your side? Cut them in on the action. Right? Cut them in on it. How many times have you been in business where you found that, you know what, I talked to a gal not too long ago, a few weeks ago. And basically, she had a dilemma, and it was a matter of integrity. She was being told to lie to one of their customers, and she was struggling with it. She, she happened to come at a place where I was speaking that day that, had to, that we were talking about integrity. She came to me later and said, I can't believe that this is what, what was being discussed today. Here's my situation. She brought a letter out that she had already written that she was going to give to her boss that day. She was being told to lie to her customer, and basically said this, Hey, you know what? And if you'll do this, there's a promotion waiting for you at the end of all of it. Wow. What were they trying to do? They weren't threatening to fire her. Because that gets us all kind of, you know, hey, you threaten me, man, I'm going to fight back. But you cut me in on it. Let's talk about it. See how that works? So what they're doing, they're telling these guys, hey, look, we want you to think that you're better than everybody else. Just think about this for a second. You're a young guy. You're a teenager. You're 14 to 17 years of age. You're impressionable. And you got somebody, somebody coming alongside you saying this. Hey, you know what? You're so much better than everybody else around you. We want you to come in and be part of our program. We're going to give you the food that the king eats, the wine that the king drinks, the clothes that's just fit for royalty. You're going to become a part of a social structure that you could only dream about ever becoming a part of. You could have never had what we have to offer you when you were in Jerusalem. Now we're going to cut you in and we're going to make you part of all of this. Listen to me. We will find, we will find ourselves in the greatest spiritual danger, not in times of adversity, but in times of prosperity. When things are going well. When there's money in the bank and food on the table and discretionary income to do what you want to do and everything's going great. God warned the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, you're going to go into a land that you have not even worked a day. You haven't prepared a thing and you're going to have all the blessings that I give you and the warning that I have for you is this. When you go there, don't forget I'm the one who blessed you. You're going to get there and say, boy, aren't we wealthy? Boy, don't we have a lot of stuff? Boy, didn't we deserve all this? God says, and the day that you forget me is the day that you will be judged by me as well. Don't forget. See, the danger of the brainwash program was to give these young men a sense of superiority over everybody else. We're going to cut you in. You're going to have everything you need. Hey, this is great, man. This is the way that it goes. Many of us have gotten caught up in the same trap, haven't we? We want to be liked by others. So therefore, we dress like them, we talk like them, we think like them, we act like them, we party with them, we conduct ourselves in business like them, we try to pattern our churches and programs like them, and the Bible says, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If we're going to be courageous, we've got to take a stand on what is right. 
And what's fascinating to me is that isn't it about time, I don't care how old you are, whether you're young or whether you're old, isn't it about time that you take a courageous stand in the environment where God has placed you? That's all. Isn't it time that we did that? Isn't it time that if you're a young person that somebody tells you, you can make a difference? You don't have to sell out. You know, it's so funny. Parents, we warn our kids about peer pressure. Don't become like your friends. Don't be like them. Don't even be friends with them if they're going to lead you in a direction that's wrong. You know, don't do... And then we grow up as adults and we got the worst people around us. And you can imagine, our kids are going, hey, look at the people around you. Look how you conduct yourself in business. Look how you conduct yourself financially. Look how you conduct yourself. And you say, oh, uh, you're worried about one of my friends? Give me a break. I think it's time that all of us take a stand and we we become courageous in in the light of mediocrity that surrounds us. But the brainwashing didn't end there. We got time for this last one and that's this. Also, the brainwashing had to do with their religious beliefs. Isn't that fascinating? Brainwashing was mental, social, and religious. You know, we tend to think that the, you know, this whole brainwashing thing is some kind of 20th century idea, but there's nothing new under the sun. And this stuff's been going on forever. But look what they try to do in verse 6. And this is important, and we'll wrap this up for this particular session, and that's this. It says, now among them, among the people that were taken into captivity, and you need to understand there were probably 70 of them that were taken into captivity. Now among these 70 were these men that God focuses his spotlight on for all of us to learn something. And that's this. Among them were the, from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It says, then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. What were they trying to do? Say, hey, you know what? You, you got a new start. It's a fresh start. Forget about Jerusalem. Forget about your background. Forget about your past. Forget about your education. Even forget about your friends because you got a new life here. And we want to make sure that you understand you have a new life and we're going to even change your name. And so basically Daniel means this. God is judge. God is judge. The name Daniel indicated the judgment of God. Isn't that fascinating that in his name we find the whole doctrine of judgment that's, that's summarized in the Bible? That is this, that God judged Jesus Christ on our behalf. That God is judge. That first of all, God judged Jesus Christ for our sins. And if we believe that, then we are free from the, from the consequences of our sin. God judged Him on the cross. The Bible then says that Jesus Christ will then judge all of humanity. That He's been given a name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. One day, Jesus Christ, God has given him the authority to judge all of humanity. Understand something very clearly. And that's this. That one day, you and I will appear before the judgment throne or seat of Jesus Christ. If you believed in him for the forgiveness of your sin, you will not appear before the great white throne judgment. If you do not believe in him for the forgiveness of your sin, you will appear before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ and he will judge you for your sin, the sin first of unbelief, and then all the rest of the sins that you committed in your life, you will be judged. And the Bible says, and then you will be condemned and sent to a place that was created for the devil and his demons, a place that's called hell, the lake of fire, Hades, and all of that we find in scripture. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you will one day be before the Bema seat of Jesus Christ where we will be judged for what we did after we believed in Jesus Christ. He will judge us for the purpose of giving us rewards, whether we were courageous as Daniel was in the environment that God's placed us. One day we will be given rewards for our performance. That's not what got us to heaven. That's what we get as a result of what we did after we believe in Jesus Christ. The whole judgment of God is found in the name of Daniel. God is judge. 
And you know what they wanted to do? They changed his name to Belteshazzar, the greatest name of the pantheon of gods that they had in their culture. Daniel stood out above all the rest of them, and therefore his name was, you know what, it's almost as if he came from, from the hand of their God himself. And his name means, uh, may Baal protect his life. It went from God is judge to may Baal protect his life. Instead of the Lord's protection and Daniel's accountability to God, they wanted him to appeal to some pagan God to protect his life. And basically what they're saying to him is this, if you choose not to play ball our way, then you're going to need all the help you can get because you will not survive. Can you imagine the pressure put on this young guy that said, hey, look, you know what? Your life hangs in the balance of how you will conduct yourself from this day forward. But we're just going to tell you right now, don't worry about your God judging you. Worry about us judging you. Isn't that amazing? How many of us are afraid because of that? We're so afraid of the judgment of men that we forget we've got to answer to God. I'll tell you, if you want to get your perspective right, as always, remember this. The only judgment that I'm worried about or I'm concerned about, I'm, I'm concerned about the judgment that I have to experience before God. Because the way I see the Bible teaches this. All the rest of the people in life I come in contact with, I'm afraid of, they're not even going to be there. They're not going to be there with me. I'm going to be there one-on-one with the God who created me, and I'm going to have to give an account for the things that I did after I believed in Jesus Christ. Now, why in the world would I be afraid of some guy who has a title with an oil company? Give me a break. It's like, hey, you don't scare me, because I know who made you, and i got to answer to him. So they changed his name from Daniel to Belteshazzar. Let's take a look at the second thing. They changed Hananiah's name. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Isn't that great? The graciousness or the grace of God? The Lord is gracious. And you think about the work of Jesus Christ. Hananiah emphasized the person of the Trinity. God is gracious. God is great. God is good. Boy. You know? I mean, that's a prayer I learned when I was a kid. and, and And it speaks volumes of doctrine. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. Amen. God is great. He's gracious. And what they tried to get across was Hananiah's parents knew that everything that they had was because of the gracious hand of God. And they changed his name to uh, Shadrach, which means illumined by the sun god. I mean, the guy was probably a good-looking guy. I mean, when they saw him, they went, whoa, look at it. It's like, you know, there's a countenance about him. It was like the light was shining on him. The guy was a stud. And they looked at him and said, oh, you know, we got the perfect name for him, illumined by the sun god. And so anytime he thought of himself, he thought, hey, I look like this because, you know, I'm illumined by the sun god. Can you imagine how easy it is to get sucked into all this? Look at me. I'm like illumined by the sun god. Hey, you know what? Think about the world we live in. We got people who worship the sun instead of worshiping the son of God. How stupid can we be? The bottom line is they wanted him to look at someone else other than God as the source of his good looks. They wanted him to start taking credit for him himself. But you know what God says? Hey, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? We need to focus not on the sun that God created that's in the sky above us. We need to focus on the son of God whom God has given us that we may find forgiveness in our sin. And that's exactly what they try to do. They wanted him to focus on the wrong son. Mishael means who and what is the Lord. Who and what is the Lord? Grace depends on the character of God. Could you imagine? This boy's parents, when he was born, realized that, you know what? Hey, who and what is like God? 
Maybe this couple, it took forever for God to bless them with a child. Maybe they went through years and years of struggling and they never had a child. And finally, when God blessed them with a child, they said, Who and what is like God? Because God can do. God is gracious. God can do for us whatever that we need. And it was obvious that grace was revealed in all of this. And they changed his name to Meshach. And the name is, Who and what is Ishtar or Venus? Now listen to this story. The story is told while some Greeks were resting on a beach, a shell was washed onto the shore by a large wave. Standing on top of the shell was the most beautiful woman who ever lived. When the Greeks saw her, they named her Aphrodite, beauty from the foam, and they made, their, made her their goddess of love. His name went from who or, what is like, who or what is the Lord to who or what is Venus. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, people criticize us for believing what the Bible says. Now, how dumb is that? When was the last time you were at Newport Beach and a wave rolled up onto the shore and out came a, a seashell with this beautiful woman standing on top of it? I, you know, I haven't seen it happen yet. Beauty from the foam. Now, the foam is nasty. <laughs> but what's the point here? What they wanted them to do was, hey, you know what? Just feel good about yourself. Just please yourself, the goddess of love. And the last one is Azariah. And we'll, and we'll close on this. Azariah's name means the Lord is my help. The Lord is my help. Can you imagine? Here's parents who have this child and they name him Azariah. And all his life they teach him this. Look, we'll do for you whatever we can as your parents. We'll do the best that we can. But you know, in the final analysis of everything, here's what it comes down to. The Lord will have to be your help. He will be the one that you'll turn to. He will be... Now think about Daniel and, and, his, and his friends. They're saying, he's going to be the one that you turn to when we're no longer around. He's going to be the one who you turn to when you go away to college. He's the one that you turn to when you're in the job that you take as a profession. He's the one you need to turn to when you have your marriage and you're dealing with your children. We'll always be there to help you. We'll do whatever we can. But the bottom line of all of this is this. Hey, you know, we need to get to be at the point as parents where we have our children become independent of us and totally dependent upon God. Because he's the one that will be with them no matter where they go. We'll do the best that we can, but the reality of all of it is very simple. We can't be there for them for everything. And here, these, these parents recognized that and said, Hey, you know what? Azariah means the Lord is my help. No matter where I go, God is there for me. Now think about this. These children, these young people are taken 800 miles away from home in a hostile environment. They're offered, they're tempted with all the temptations that come with a world that some of us can only dream or even imagine. And Azariah, who was supposed to focus on the Lord, will be my help through all of us. His name is changed to Abednego, which means the servant or slave of Nego, the God of wisdom and education. Don't trust God. Boy, isn't that the world we live in? Don't trust God. Trust man's education. Trust man's philosophy. Trust man's education process. Don't trust God. The question as we look at all this is, how in the world are Daniel and his friends going to handle the temptations that have just been thrown before them? They have been chosen to enjoy a life of privilege, to enjoy what many of us look at as the American dream. Think about it. They've gotten a full ride to a top education program in the country. Top education. One of the top universities in all of the world in Babylon. They got a full ride, baby. 
They were going for free. Why? Because their SAT scores were the highest. They were the cream of the crop. They were taken. They were chosen. They were set apart from all their classmates. Man, they were put in a position where it's like, hey, now you are somebody special. And we're going to pick up the tab for everything. You don't think that in the back of their mind they're thinking, man, maybe we owe these people something. After all, they are doing a lot for us. They had a new social circle. They were in the upper crust. They had money, prestige, aloofness, food, clothes, wine, the best of all materialism. Then they had a new religious system. One where they were to be served and they didn't have to serve anybody else. They were the ones being waited upon. They were the ones being served. They were the ones that were being told, take credit for all your accomplishments. Don't be giving credit to any God. Because let's face it, what did God do? If God was real, He wouldn't have allowed you to be taken into captivity. You know what? I turn my back on that God and I'd hook your wagon to us, baby, because we're going to take you far. Forget about everything you learned in the past. It's a whole new day. And the question I have for you is this. What was Daniel and his friends going to do and how were they going to respond? And the only way you're going to know is if you read it yourself and study yourself or come back next week because we're out of time. So I'm assuming that I'll see you next week. But let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this word. Thanks for your truth. Thank you for the opportunity to look at Daniel and his life. And God, help us to become men and women who are just like Daniel, regardless of our age, whether we're still in school, whether in business, wherever we are in life, help us to become men and women who, as we will learn, become courageous in the midst of hostile environment. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the the relevancy of it. Uh, We just thank you for everything that you're going to do as we learn and we apply it to our lives. And we look forward to these things in Christ's name. Amen.